This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the captivating Simon Belanger. We are so back. It's been a while since the two of us have gone on the pod here and discussed, you know, all the things that we want to talk about with the world of financial markets, things we're doing in our portfolios. But it is so good to be back and see you. Simon, what's it been like? You know, it's been it's been guest after guest. How are the numbers doing? Are people liking this? I think so. I mean, got a lot of good feedback for for the two guests uh, that I got, the episodes that are already out, and then people will be listening to this will also have heard the earnings and news that I did with Dan Kent from StocksTrades.ca. Um, so yeah, that uh, that went really well. Everything went well, and the two that are already out, really good fe- feedback. Um, so Mike Roux from, uh, well, the Dividend Guy, so that was great going over Enbridge, and then talking macro with Rich Diaz, that was fun as well. Well, it's been nice to have a break. You know, you were and you are an investor in my company, and so I was closing our financing round. So very, very busy with that. I don't have an official announcement yet, but everything is closed. We raised a couple million Canadian for the company to keep growing, hiring, and, and scale it out. So very, very exciting stuff. But uh, good to see the pod. I, I'm looking here on our analytics, buddy. September. September was great. Hey, hey, listeners. September is hey. always good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listeners, keep it yeah. up. All right. This, this, this show, the show goes on and the show keeps growing. We love to see it. So, Simone, those who are subscribers of jointci.com got to see this already, but I finally bought ASML and I wanted to highlight it on the show because, you know, you've been a shareholder for, has for it been a, a while or? For, for a year, year, I bought it. Yeah, I bought okay. it last year. Remember when there was like the tech, uh, not meltdown, but definitely uh, tech was semi sold off hard. a lot. Uh, yeah, in the fall oh, of yeah. twenty two. Yeah, so I mean, it's still not at the price I bought it at, but it's definitely in my update. Actually, it's funny that you bought it because I had it as one of the stocks I'm keeping an eye on because the valuation has definitely come down and it's looking more and more attractive. Um, I might be adding soon as well. So it's funny that uh, I guess great minds think alike. Yeah, because I, I, you know, September a lot of stuff got rocked and you're going to talk about it. Uh, you know, high yielders, the TSX is now negative year to date. Uh, the S and P equal weighted is now negative, which is crazy because it shows you how much of the index is weighted towards those. What, what are we calling the magnificent seven big tech stocks now? So, um, you know, not everything has been all great for stocks here in 2023. Um, and so what does that mean? opportunity for adding to, or in, the, in my case, finally, it's been a while since I've got a new position, adding to what I think is one of the best businesses on planet Earth, or at least one of the most important businesses on planet Earth. I think we can agree on that. So I like to think that I have, you know, a nice watch list. I use Stratosphere's dashboarding feature and I keep track of, you know, obviously those companies' fundamentals, but also just like how you go on performance tab and you can just see like how it's performed year, three months, six months, year, five year, all that stuff. And it just gives you an idea of just like what's been working and what's been not working in the, 
in the manicness of Mr. Market in the short term. And sometimes Mr. Market gives you an I- some, some new ideas. Now, is this a very cheap stock? No. Uh, I think it trades at like 30 times historical. It's a little better on forward, but it, it had a really, really nice run here in 2023, um, which has been nice to see off a poor, as you mentioned, 2022 for these stocks. So what I really should have done is be as smart as you and buy it when you did it in the fall of 22. So here's a, here's a lesson on, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. It's hard to know though sometimes, yeah. I had strong conviction though. Like I really wanted to buy ASML at that time. And so I look back and I go, it was my number one pick at the time. Uh, the, the valuation was a lot more attractive. And when you have strong conviction, you know, you only get so many pitches and you only get so many punch cards. So when you have strong conviction, act on it. But neither of us can rewrite history. And this is one of the best businesses in the world, dominant position in lithography, that M word monopoly. Uh, now, the, the, the second best time in my view is now uh, from then. And I will likely be continuing to build a position over the next few months because it could be rough uh, for these names over the next few months uh, or next few quarters because analysts are predicting a heavy slowdown in demand for the consumer side of this business when it comes to electronics. So I could say like everything X data center chips. Long term, the importance of this business cannot be understated. They are essential in continuing to push the envelope in the computing era a stock you've owned for some time now, I no longer have to feel jealous on the sidelines. So it's a small name for me now, and I, I it's time for me to build it up. Hopefully, you know, the analysts are right that it's a rough few quarters because this is a stock I want to hold for a long time. Yeah, and I think the geopolitical dynamics will definitely be a tailwind here. I think you can debate whether it will be or not uh, because, uh, you know, they still sell a lot of their mach- their deep ultraviolet so duv so they're less i guess i would say less technological uh, machines that don't make as high performing chips they still sell a lot of those to china so that's something to keep in mind but the fact that there is this kind of bilateral world now we're not i don't think we're in the world anymore that it's solely the u.s there's kind of the u.s its allies and then there's kind of the BRICS with india kind of flip-flopping between both sides, I would say. Uh, But that new dynamic, I think um, the U.S. is not being shy of that. Uh, They are trying to build the capacity to manufacture semiconductors and the most advanced one in North America, whether it's in the U.S., but also some of their friendly countries like Canada, Mexico, and other countries in Europe. So they're definitely investing heavily into that. And I think that'll be a big tailwind for a company like ASML. And the, I forget the name of it. There is a Chinese entity that is attempting to be, you know, a player in an EUV. Because right now there is one player in EUV, which is ASML. And so they want to reduce their dependence on that. And so, but from my research, which is, you know, the last week or so before I bought the position, it sounds like they are far, far behind on EUV in terms of making any advancements or, or production-ready type machines. Because, dude, these machines are unbelievably complicated. Like, it, it, is, it is mind-blowingly complicated. They're sh- blasting a laser at the smallest piece of molten tin that you can possibly create, which is microscopic, to make these things. And, you know, they're, they're hundreds of millions of dollars each. 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very important bottleneck in what is now become the most important technology on earth, which is these advanced chips. It, it rules our lives and it's going to rule the next era of computing as well. Yeah, the company you're referring to, I believe, is Shanghai Microelectronics Equipment or SMEE. Yeah, that's right. That's that's exactly yeah. it. I, I knew it was an acronym, just like this one. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's going to be very difficult for them, um, even if they pour tons of money. It just, um, you know, in China, I think one of the big issues is them pouring money, but it's also making sure that that money is actually uh, invested efficiently. And that's always been a bit of an issue in China where the, the government has been pouring money into certain things. Um, so you have to, you know, give props to capitalism where, you know, businesses are actually investing and developing this technology. So we'll see whether it works or not. Uh, something to definitely keep an eye on if you own ASML. But I'm not too concerned from the time being. But, you know, that could change in a year or two. Um, that could change. Maybe they do uh, figure a way to uh, to do it and then offer an alternative to ASML. Yes. Don't buy and hold. Buy and verify over time uh, if your thesis remains correct. All right, Simon, the, a lot of people want to know about <laughs> this because there's a lot of sectors and a, lo a large part of the TSX, to be exact, that has oh, been yeah. getting absolutely demoed lately. What's going on? Yeah, so I mean, it's funny because the, the title of this segment, which will probably be what we have the title for the podcast, but dividend stocks getting crushed. And it's been a really bad month for... Stocks in general, I would say the past month hasn't been great. The S&P 500 is definitely down around 5-6% if we factor in today. We're recording on October 3rd. But especially sectors that have a higher higher dividend payers and more debts. So according to sectorspdr.com, I think it's a great side just for people looking to see the different sectors. They do a really good breakdown uh, to show how the sectors are going. The only issues is you can't, you only have kind of set time frames i could only uh, go one month but i will use some different data here um, a bit further on in this segment and for context here i used this this morning so it's probably worse than this because it's not been a great day today but utilities when i pulled the data were down 10.3 percent in the past month real estate down 9.59 percent and industrial down 7.73. So the three things they have in common clearly, these are they tend to be businesses that are pretty reliant on debt. Uh, that's just the realities. And they pay a dividend. And a lot of people invest in these businesses because they want that big dividend. So clearly, you know, the higher rates are starting to put a lot of pressure on it. But I think the market, obviously, as people can see in the past month, I think we can say it's market as a whole obviously there's pockets that have done better than others but it's all red so for our joint tci subscribers you'll see it everything is red um like you said earlier i think the snp 500 equal weighted is uh, negative now for the year the snp tsx which is heavily weighted towards dividend stocks is also negative not surprising so now to continue on that so most of this actually happened after September 20th. And for those who are into macro, they'll probably know what this means. This is actually when the Fed did their latest rate announcement and they actually did not increase, but Powell spoke. And essentially, I'm just recapping, it was a couple of weeks ago, but essentially he just told people and investors that 
rates will stay higher for a longer period of time. So since then, the S&P 500 is down 3.5%. The USRT ETF, which is the iShares US Core REIT ETF, is down 8.1%. The Canadian equivalent, which is the XRE.TO, so the iShares Cap REIT ETF is down 8.8%. XUT.TO, which is the TSX Cap Utilities ETF, is down 10.5%. And IDU, same thing, utilities, but on the US side, is down a massive 12.2%. So you can really see there's been a, a big drawdown, especially in those sectors that are highly rate sensitive and you can see for the last month it's it's definitely not great for that but i think it's important for people to keep that in perspective because it can definitely create some opportunities um anything you wanted to add before i continue it's you just you just hit it right it's those rate sensitive highly levered what what i'll call stock bonds that are getting crushed so heavy because you have the a risk free rate which is you know, ex- acceptable and maybe attractive now for yield investors for the first time in gosh knows how long. And a lot of those names are very, since a lot of them have regulated returns, are very levered. And so it's a bit of a double whammy there as, as rates shift up. Now, I, I look at some of these names here, real estate, utilities. Some of them have like other issues as well, like maybe maybe real estate in particular, if you're talking about commercial or office. Uh, utilities. It really depends on on their on their balance sheet how all this is is kind of structured. It it, it doesn't mean that they're all you know screwed just because they have higher uh, you know higher interest payments. Some of them in this basket, you'll find a lot of opportunity as well. I would say because you know putting that kind of label across the entire sector, the market does too. The market does that. And so that can be opportunity when searching in, into these baskets. Do I have any particular names off the top of my head? No, maybe you have some uh, to look at here. But, you know, when there's, uh, when there's blood on the streets, as the saying goes. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'll talk about a couple names here. I'll finish. I'll double click on what you just said to for the rates, how it's impacting uh, some businesses more than others and the reasons for that. Uh, but... I mean, people have been asking me questions for two names specifically. So Brookfield Renewable Partners, which is down 20% or close to it since September 20th, which is crazy. And, you know, I laugh here because These it big, is one big of... Big moves for utilities. Yeah, they are. Yeah, big moves. And it's one of my larger positions. So, you know, you can... If you own it, I definitely feel your pain. But at the same time, I'm, I'm a long-term investor. And I am dripping uh, BEP. So that's the dividend reinvestment plan. So every time they pay a dividend, I get more shares. So for me, I'm not too concerned because the dividend payment was actually a couple days ago and I got some more shares than I usually do. Um, and I just see that as being able to buy them cheaper. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I've talked that before on other podcasts is when you have a longer term horizon and you have these kind of dividend stocks, I mean, one of the better outcomes you can get is it actually is deep. It actually trades at a very low price 
multiples for an extended period of time while you're just accumulating. And then when you're in the kind of phase of having to start receiving income from it or having to sell some shares, that's when you want them to go up in appreciation. Obviously, some people may be in that phase of their life and they're being more impacted by it. And definitely, obviously, you might have to reevaluate your portfolio, especially if that's, you know, part of your financial plan of your income plan. But that's not where I'm at currently. And then the other name was Allied Property REIT, which is down 14%. And it's been down pretty massively all year, but that's down 14% since that dreaded September 20th date. Now, Brookfield Renewables, there's nothing new. People were asking, is there anything? you no, there's nothing new aside from an update that came in yesterday from management uh, they put a news release out that they announced an automatic purchase plan that came out uh, yesterday and in short it gives management more flexibility to repurchase shares so essentially that's management saying that they believe this is overdone I'm reading between the lines here but they see value in repurchasing some of their outstanding units and that's very Brookfield they tend to do that so if they see value, they'll usually go ahead and be able to repurchase shares at a discounted price if they see the price being too uh, too low in their view, and they'll maximize shareholder returns by doing that. Now, Allied Property Read is a little bit different, so nothing new from their front. No news. Their earnings is coming out at the end of the month here. I think it was announced a couple of days ago. And there is an interesting video that I will link to the show notes here. So their new CEO, Cecilia Williams, uh, was interviewed by BNN Bloomberg, and I think it's worth a watch. I mean, it's nothing new for me. Um, kind of aligns with what Allied was saying in their latest earnings release um, and earnings call. So it's really nothing new. I think for Allied, it's definitely a mix of uh, the market being bearish on office space, and it's interesting because Allied actually just paid down a billion in debt recently with the sale of their data center portfolio. So I think they sold it for 1.3, and they used. 1 billion worth of that to pay down debt. So they're actually pretty well, you know, they're from a balance sheet perspective, they're actually in a pretty good situation. So it just makes me think that it's just a market pulling down the sector as a whole. And, you know, I still think there's going to be headwinds in the short term for office space. Uh, but it's a company I'll follow kind of quarter by quarter, making sure I'm staying on top of it. And, you know, if I see some really bad warning signs, uh, maybe I'll reevaluate. Obviously, I'm not gonna blindly just hold on to it but i think that's probably the reason for allied um and in terms did you have any thoughts about brookfield saying that they would be repurchasing shares about bp i think um like i was mentioning it's a very brookfield thing to do when they see uh, an opportunity to deploy capital in just a different way right that's in their dna right is, is go against the current thing. <laughs> that's like, yeah. you know, that's always, that's been their mantra now since entire, the entire era of Bruce Flatt for now over 20 years and, and, and before him as well. And so I, I'm nothing surprises me when they go against the grain here. The office one is interesting, right? Because markets or sectors or specific names bottom at when they find maximum pain with investors. And I think that that, you know, like how, how much more, you know, can, <laughs> how much more can the maximum pain be found? Because it, it's been really, really painful for a lot of these names. And so it's not to say like, oh, here's the bottom or, you know, it's coming soon. But there has been a ton of pain inflicted here. 
I think that the, the, the catalyst for these names in particular to turn around is like, what is the future for all these renewals? Like there's so much uncertainty for anyone to have any confidence in the renewals on these leases for, for an allied or something. If it goes good, you're going to see like monster returns on it. Like that, I, I see it pretty asymmetric, but I, I do also think that there's could be more max. Like you think you found maximum pain and it could get a lot more painful in the future. Yeah, well, one of the uh, things that their CEO was saying in uh, that interview from BNN Bloomberg is that um, they're seeing tour activity uh, being high, but one of the concerns of the businesses is not the return to office, is the macroeconomic environment. So that's a big concern because the businesses are like seeing, you know, the economy starting to slow and they're being very careful with their capital allocation decisions and committing to new leases. So I think that, which is not different, she said, from past cycles, which I totally understand, but you have that double whammy of interest rates on top of that and also the return to work that's, you know, kind of, we're still seeing where it's going, right? We don't really know what to, for sure where it's going to go. But um, at the end of the day, I think the big drawdown that people are seeing, it all comes back to Powell's speech, especially going back to the two weeks, um, which is speech. I think the market just realized that rates will be staying higher for longer. According to the CME Fed watch tool, the market is not pricing a greater than 50% probability of rate cuts until the second half of 2024. And that used to be much sooner. I think it was like by the end of this year, just like a month or two ago, um, there was a decent chance of a rate cut by the end of this year. And then Powell's speech actually happened and that pushed back everything. Obviously, that changes on a daily basis, but I always find it interesting because it does give a good sentiment of what the market is thinking. And then this, you know, the second part here is. I don't think it's a surprise uh, to anyone, but U.S. bond yields have risen in the past year, but it's even more pronounced when you look at the change in the last month. The longer you go on the yield curve, so the duration, the more the change is pronounced, and it levels off around the 10-year mark uh, if you look at the yield curve, and Canada is no different when you look at the five-year bond. Um, it's actually increased like very significantly. I don't think people realize how a lot of... like I know people who are into this and look at it a lot will realize, but if you look at just since September, I mean, you're looking at about... I'm just ballparking here, but 50 basis point increase... And the central banks have not said that they were increasing the rates. It's just that the market is pricing in these rates for a longer period of time. And that's why they're actually higher. So if people were holding like, you know, e-bond ETFs that hold the five years Canada bonds or 10 year U.S. treasuries, like anything beyond five years, um, you've been hit pretty hard in the past month because the value has gone down to match with those higher rates. So the actual price or the underlying value of those bonds has gone down. So I think that's one of the big other big thing that's kind of playing here. And to put things into context, the yield on the 10-year U.S. bonds and five years for Canada haven't been this high since 2007. So that's a yeah, that's a that's a pretty long time. And essentially, what this means is investors can get about four point seven percent 
on the U.S. 10-year currently and 4.5% on the five-year bond for Canada. And in our current financial system, that's seen as the risk-free rate. And I put that in air quote because I I do think there is risk in everything. Um, There's nothing as risk-free. Two years ago, and essentially since the financial crisis, investors who were looking for yield really only had two options. So if you're looking to get yield, like let's say four or five years ago, it was either dividend stocks or like junk bonds or risky debt assets. These were the really two, unless you know another one, Braden, I'm not sure. No, (laughs) No, I don't think so. Yeah. And so higher rates also mean that for a lot of these dividend payers, they will have to pay more in interest costs or reference that, uh, whether it's because of variable credit lines or cheap debt that's coming to maturity. And I think that's one of the bigger issues as well affecting these dividend stocks. So I'll just finish here by saying what I'm doing. Personally, not much. I'm not planning to sell any of my dividend position because I believe the businesses are solid. I am looking at adding to some of my existing dividend paying companies. I actually added a little bit to Brookfield Infrastructure Partners this morning, uh, but looking at Canadian National Rail, I also have my eye on a few reads, but I need to do a bit more research. It's not highlighted. It would be some new reads, but I think the main takeaways for people here is I think there's three things in my mind you have to keep in mind. First, for these higher yield companies, um, understand what the debt looks like, how much they have in debt and how it's structured is really important. Is the business model sustainable? And then do it. they have sufficient wiggle room in their payout ratio for their dividend? Because that will dictate whether they can keep the dividend, increase it or cut it. Buffett, I think it's in... Uh... Have you read the book Buffetology? It's obviously it's obviously not written by him, but yeah, it's kind of I like heard a, of it. Yeah. It's like a summary of all of his writings and all of his learnings over, you know, several, several decades. And Buffetology had a section about his admiration for I think he called them stock bonds or they're like bond-like stocks or whatever, however they referred to it in the book. And what that means is just like equities, stocks that have sufficient income yields on them that kind of like act as bond proxies, even though you're buying the equity. And I think so many, especially on the TSX, Canadians have been very attracted to this type of asset. Um, Look no further than the constituents on like the TSX 60. Uh, You know, very low growth, high yields, usually pretty steady cash flows, very levered and yeah, I mentioned high yields. <laughs> when you have now competition for that style of asset with higher rates at lower volatility profiles, and you have the double whammy of those very levered assets having to deal with higher interest payments, it's a tough environment from these names when rates go from zero to where they are in such a short time frame. That's not very normal. Uh, I think it was, I saw on Twitter, someone described it as you have a beach ball underwater. You know, when you have a beach ball underwater or like a basketball and it really wants to, it really wants to like sprout up there because it's, you know, all the air and the ball. And so that's what the analogy is, is that keeping rates at zero for that long was like keeping the beach ball just like spring loaded, ready to to rise up. Because that move from zero to where it is today happens so fast because the beach ball is just being pulled under there for so long. And that's the way I think about 
what has happened with these names is these blue chip names, I'm calling them blue chip with air quotes, have been dealing with a completely different environment for so, so long, all the way till 2008, which is a good segue to my latest, uh, my, my segment on the, on the podcast here today, which is called Climbing the Wall of Worry. I pulled data since 2008 because I think it's an important distinction between, you know, pre-financial crisis and post-financial crisis. And stocks are said to climb the wall of worry. This basic concept is that stocks as an asset class have done, you know, excellent, uh, or at least very good for investors returning around 10% historically, uh, you know, if you look at a long, long time horizon, real, real return after inflation is less than that, but you know, 10% historically. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know my frequent reminders that stocks actually rarely return around 10%. Usually the market in calendar years is up big or down big. That's actually way more normal historically than anywhere producing the around the average. So stocks have gone through these large global headlines and they climb what is called the wall of worry. So just since then, there is a huge list on this graphic, but I'm going to just share a few of them. So uh, Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy. Uh, the Federal Reserve ar- arranges takeover of Bear Stearns by JP Morgan. Okay. Right after that, we had this H1N1 virus global pandemic scare. Uh, there were earthquakes in Haiti. Greek debt was a, a joke. What, what, what were the companies? It was like, yeah, that the was, countries. yeah, there was Greece. I think Portugal may Greece, have been Portugal. One. Yeah. Oh man, that was like 2012 or 2011. Yeah. Huh? Something yeah, like that. Tw- yeah, yeah. It was like mid 2010, I think. Yeah. It was Greece, Portugal, and there was a third country that it was just assumed they were all going to f- default on their debt. Okay. Interesting. There was a flash crash. There was a U.S. debt crisis lingering. Uh, Deep Horizon oil spill, if you remember that one. Uh, Portugal got bailed out in, uh, in 2011. There was this new spawning of the European debt crisis. The S&P downgraded the US debt rating during that time. North Korea confirmed successful nuclear strike testing. There was an Ebola outbreak. There was a government shutdown. Argentina defaulted on its debt again in 2014. Uh, we had um, lots of U.S. politics here that I'm not going to get into. There was an airstrikes in Syria. The Fed funds rate. Donald Trump comes into power. Drama with OPEC. Hurricane Harvey, Harvey and Irma were both devastating to the U.S. Uh, huge changes on imports from imported steel and aluminum. Uh, drama with China. What do we got here? Uh, COVID-19. <laughs> we forgot about that. Uh, and then, you know, there's more and more. And China cracked down on big tech. Uh, 2022, inflation goes crazy. War in Ukraine with Russia, on and on and on. I listed about one third of the list of these headlines as I'm just going through and reading them since 2008. Now, that's not that long of a time when you think about you know the hundreds of years that that 10% annual return comes from. During that time, Simon, since the low of 08, the S&P 
had a total return, including dividends of 528%, uh, which represents a compounded annual growth rate of 13.2% over that roughly 15-year period. Now, that's just since 2008. The market has been climbing the wall of worry for a lot, lot longer. And we're always worried about the current thing until there's the next current thing. And I tweeted this out a few days ago, and I said, pessimists pessimists get to be right. Optimists get to be right in the long term. Or sorry, I messed up my own quote. Pessimists get to be right in the <laughs> short term. <laughs> Pessimists get to be right in the short term. Optimists get to be right in the long term. And you know, before I round this out here and, and get your take, that's cool and all, but like, it sounds great. I get it. Stocks go up. But why? Why? What, you know, I, I, why do stocks climb the wall of worry? And why has during that time, the S&P had a total return of nearly... Yeah, 13.2% compound annual growth rate. And the reason is, is that index is made up of businesses. And those businesses, the value of them increases as stocks follow earnings. Those companies have produced more earnings during that time. Look at a historical EPS of the S&P versus price. It fluctuates around that line, but it follows earnings. Now, I actually believe the more correct modern approach is stocks follow free cash flow per share, but <laughs> but that's not as catchy as stocks follow earnings, is it? So the, the, the term earnings will work just fine for our understanding here. And, and one last quote here from, from Howard Marks. Occasionally, people lose track of the fact that in the long run, stocks can't do much better than the companies that issue them. End quote, Howard Marks. Mic drop, Howard Mike Marks. Drop. There Boom. you go. <laughs> yeah. Howard Marks, by the way, who made a lot of money buying cheap debt around the financial or it was, um, what was it? Non-investment grade debt, I believe, around right around the financial crisis where it was trading at like pennies on the dollars. And uh, I think you made a killing doing that. He had a really good memo that he released a few months ago, and it was earlier this summer, and it was basically just bashing on, uh, you know, the mistake of low rates for so long, and that that should never happen again. That was a huge mistake. Yeah, I think he's right. Oh, I think he's definitely right. Yeah. There was no reason aside from just not wanting to go into recession, but recession is just a normal part of markets. And when you try to delay it, you create other issues. Exactly. And yeah, and now I think we're seeing it, and... You know, I think people have come to the realization that a recession has to happen to make things better going forward. It's going to be hard for some people. Recessions always hard. Um, you know, they impact some people more than others, and that's fine. But the reality is there's economic cycles. And if you try to play with monetary policy to try and avoid them, you're just delaying the inevitable. And oftentimes it's making it worse. So you're delaying a recession that would have been pretty mild to a, a bit more, you know, noticeable recession because you tried to keep interest rates low when it was the perfect opportunity to slowly raise them because the economy was doing well. But um, hopefully, you know, our almighty central bankers have uh, learned their lesson. <laughs> it's just like muscle. If you want your muscles to grow bigger and stronger, what do you do? You train them and to the point that the muscle fibers actually break. Yeah. And then they have to rebuild stronger. And so that, that kind of, it's an analogy kind of that I 
I'm thinking of right now of just there has to be, you know, the, the down for for you to come out yeah. of it stronger. Look at long-term credit cycles and short-term credit cycles. Say 30-minute YouTube video on the economy, how credit cycles work by Ray Dalio. It's like a 30-minute uh, animated, narrated thing by Ray Dalio. It's on YouTube. And if you haven't watched it, it'll open to your mind to what we're thinking about right now. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're any bit interested in macro, you should listen to Ray Dalio. He's, I could listen to him hours on end. I mean, he's just so smart and the, the, the data and the experience he's gathered over the years with Bridgewater is just, uh, it's just a wealth of knowledge. Like you, I learn something new every time I listen to something from Ray Dalio. All right. Last topic on the slate here today. <laughs> some, uh, oh, oh yeah. God, scam banker on fraud. Yeah, SBF. So Sam Bankman freed uh, the trial starts. I believe it's today, huh? That it Is starts. It today? If, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's today. So I'll just recap we're, yeah, a little bit. We're recording bit. this on Tuesday, yeah. October third. Uh, the trial started today. Yeah. So. You know, I'll do this as a, a shorter segment. Obviously, this is a bit more of a news item, but I'm sure we'll be probably talking about it next uh, month or so. I'm not sure how long the trial is actually supposed to last, but um, I don't know about you, but for me, it's one of the most interesting trials I can remember. I know a lot of people like watched a Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial that happened a couple of years ago, and that got a whole lot of press. But for me, because, you know, of my interest, is just SBF is just the one that it will be really fascinating. Uh, I'm definitely gonna try to look at a recap every day just to get a little bit of sense of what's happening. How about you? Yeah, it's one of those things where you can't look away because it, it's just unbelievable the things that they did uh, and and the level allegedly of fraud allegedly that was committed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Allegedly. Sorry, yeah. allegedly. Well, I'll, I'll let the courts <laughs> decide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So allegedly, yeah. So SBF is facing, he is facing, not allegedly, he is facing seven charges in total, which he has pleaded not guilty to. They relate to wire fraud, securities fraud, commodities fraud, and money laundering. So a lot of fraud charges. Um, I'm actually especially interested in hearing what Caroline Ellison has to say because she is the former CEO or co-CEO of Alameda Research. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Alameda Research, it was a crypto hedge fund that allegedly used customer funds from FTX to cover losses and she will be one of the main witnesses against SBF and for those not aware SBF was out on a bail until two months ago when it was revoked the reason it was revoked was due to the wit uh, to witness tampering following allegation by prosecutors that he had leaked Caroline Ellison's diary to the New York Times. Um, so this just gets more and more interesting. And Weren't Caroline, they lovers? They were lovers. And apparently <laughs> that diary goes over the fact that she had, you know, it was difficult for her to still work with SBF after they were no longer together and all the different things. She didn't feel competent at times. That's what I kind of heard. I read the New York Times articles just to to get a sense because it was leaked over to them. Uh, but, you know, this guy's judgment is just not the greatest. Like, he was living with his parents. <laughs> oh, That's the hot take. Oh, my God. Century. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you just wonder. Like, anyways, it just sounds like he was trying to... 
Uh, like, I honestly am not tr quite sure what he's trying to do. Um, it'll be interesting to trial for that just to see what strategy, what defense strategy they're using. Because it yeah. sounds from what I've read, they're looking What's at a strategy. Angle? Well, I think the angle, and I could be wrong, that they're looking to play is that he's the victim here. That he right. was listening to his legal team. And that they should have known better. And he was just doing what the legal team was signing off on. So that's what I've heard that he's going to try to do. Um, who knows? I mean, that's why the trial will be so fascinating because we'll know what angle he's taking. Uh, but anyways, that's kind of my take. I will definitely be checking, uh, you know, not spending the whole evening, but every day maybe like taking five, ten minutes to just have a quick recap of what happened. I'm not, you know, I'm sure it's going to be live stream. I'm not going to be watching that nonstop, but definitely still have a, an interest in what's happening there. Have you? So, I, I, just before we started recording, Michael Lewis, who's the author of many famous financial event books, a lot of them have to do with fraud as well. Like The Big Short, for instance, is his original book. Then there was the movie adaptation from The Big Short book. He is doing the SBF book, and it apparently just came out yesterday or something. And he went on 60 Minutes. And I have to send you it after. You have to watch it after. Yeah. He defends this man. He he says he basically defends his fraud. And I have been such a fan of Michael Lewis for so long. And everyone's t like commenting like, how much did this man get paid off? Like, how, like what is happening here? Because it's clear fraud. Um, and, and he's saying things that are defending uh, my, uh, SBF. Coffeezilla, who's the very famous YouTube video who exposes scams, he tweeted just now, finish reading Michael Lewis's book so you don't have to. You were not misled by that 60 Minutes interview. It is a full-out defense of Sam Bankman-Fried. He spends more time questioning the intentions of the bankruptcy John Ray, bankruptcy lawyer John Ray, than he does Sam Bankman-Fried. I am speechless. So that's really disappointing because... This guy is scumbag. <laughs> well, Megan Fried is a scumbag. Is is Caroline Ellison up for charges as well? She, she uh, I don't me feel know. More uncomfortable than any other human in the world. Like yeah, when someone she's... talks, I I want to cringe. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if she's going to end up having to serve time. It'll probably be reduced because obviously the whole point is that she's cooperating with authorities. And I think they really want right. to get SBF. I think that's the whole point behind it. But uh, I don't know this. I'm kind of speechless. Maybe I'll read the book just to have an idea. It was a 60 minute interview. But remember when he was tweeting like that's what i don't understand he was literally tweeting months before weeks before the bankruptcy and the fall of ftx happened and literally lying to people and it was yeah. obvious like afterwards that it was a lie like people were like saying but you said something completely different so he would change exactly like his story at one point he was you know i think for months he was just saying ftx was fine was an insolvent like all the stuff he was saying on twitter um that turned out to be completely untrue um so that's what i find a bit confusing but also like we were talking before we recorded i think he goes, and I don't know, I haven't watched the video yet, but it goes on to say, like, if there wasn't a bank run, FTX yeah. would have been fine. 
<laughs> well, that's the whole point. FTX was not a bank. Like a bank is the only thing in our system that can operate on flag fractional reserves. If you have an right. exchange, whether it's stocks, whether it's uh, for, it for crypto. Mingling funds, yeah. No, you should have one for one. If I have one Bitcoin, one Ethereum, you should have one Bitcoin, one Ethereum to bag that. If Braden has right. one Bitcoin, one Ethereum, one Solana, whatever other crypto coin you want to talk about, you should have that same ratio backing that, not an equivalent amount in another, you know, crypto made or the token. Oh, made the up made token, up token yeah. like the FTT, I think they had. Um, yeah. So that's where I take it, issue with it. It's like, okay, like, you know, bank run could be an excuse when you're a bank, but this is not the case. So when you told me that, I was just, I mean, I guess I'll watch a 60 minute. I'll make, um, I'm just going on what you told me here, but, uh, and what CoffeeZilla said, but uh, yeah, I'm a little confused as to why, if that's the case, he would go out and say that. It's like the Wolf of Wall Street quote. It's a fugazi, it's a fugazi, like all the co-mingling of the funds <laughs> what does he say? <laughs> Fairy dust, trixie dust, it's all made up. That's that's how I feel about this whole situation. It's it, it was all made up, it was all it was all fraud. And here's the here's the part that makes people so mad is this is obviously like classified as white collar crime, right? You billions of dollars stolen via white collar crime, which is this this essentially a version of a Ponzi here with crypto. And he's walking, he's on bail, but he's walking around in the Bahamas, having a good, like people are rightfully frustrated with how these types of criminals are treated in the system. And I 100% agree. You know, if, if you were to, the amount of damage and pain caused to people and families from this level of crime far, far surpasses the things that people are, you know, thrown in jail for years over, you know, something that was done, you know, not via white collar crime. And people are so rightfully upset about that. Um, and, and I think that it's completely fair because the amount of damage that these criminals cause, you, uh, you know, with white collar crime and financial crimes like this cannot be understated. Like this, this, if, if all the allegations are correct, he should go to jail for life. That's my opinion. Uh, that, yeah. is, that, is, that is my hard opinion on this. No, I, I totally agree. And obviously not to get too grim. And I just, while you were saying that, I just typed in FTX suicide. And yeah, there's countless stories of people that took their lives or were on the verge of contemplating it. I know it's harsh to hear, but because... They lost all their money on FTX. And I think it's stuff yeah. like that because people see, oh, it's just white collar crime doesn't affect anyone or it's just money. But people's life can be ruined with this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's the indirect cause that you see. And this is nothing new, right? I think there was um, Bernie Madoff. I think there yeah. were some people that took their own lives because of Including that. Including his family. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, sons. that's right. Yeah, one of his yeah, sons. one of his sons. Um, so people tend to forget just because it's white collar crime, but you know, a lot of the time it's actually more devastating than, you know, other types of crime. So I think it's really important. Because the scale can far surpass, you know, 
for lack of a better term, traditional crimes, you know, yeah. the good old no. traditional crimes. Uh, the scale can far, far surpass it when you have something like this. Um, yeah. So we'll be following along on the trial one because we're interested in it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like I like seeing justice for this kind of stuff. I, I hope it's treated properly, um, but time will tell. Thank you for listening to the show. Getting grim at the end there. <laughs> thanks yeah, for I know. listening. We didn't plan that. <laughs> thanks, yeah. for, thanks for yeah. coming along for the ride on the on the show. We are here Mondays and Thursdays like clockwork. Uh, the show goes on. You can support the show, and as I mentioned there, uh, my note about you know finally purchasing, get, getting my act together, finally purchasing ASML. That was posted yesterday on jointci.com because every single month we have our monthly portfolio updates. And as well, you know, it's it supports the show. Simone posts his uh, quarterly income portfolio that he does uh, for the listeners and originally it stemmed from helping out his parents. And it's going to be some high see- yield, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think that portfolio is doing very well this month. No, um, but uh, income then- seekers, yeah. <laughs> Income seekers. And then this um, this podcast also via video as well is on jointci.com. So you get all three of those wonderful things for what is it, like $9 Canadian? I, I think it's $9 yeah. Canadian. Six euros, nine Canadian. Six I, euros. I've seen the weird, yeah. seen the, uh, the weird amounts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll get an email of like six euros being deposited to your account. I'm like, what? Yeah, thank you for that person from that. Europe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see some support over the pond there. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.